Good afternoon, 7 Investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein. I'm joining you live from Davenport, Florida. And I am, of course, being joined by Steve Symington. Steve, how was your weekend? It was good. Uh, rained all weekend, I guess, which is a little bit of a bummer. And and uh, But other than that, great. Everything's going to be super green in a few days, so I'm pleased. The uh, weekend was glorious here in West Palm Beach. Uh, well, I'm not in West Palm Beach at the moment, but that's where I was this weekend. It was really, really nice weather. Uh, went to the pool multiple times. Had a very good time. Learned about 10 minutes before this show that we closed on our condo. So I am I am once again a homeowner, which is awesome. uh, for like a Four days I wasn't. So it's, it's, it's <laughs> congrats. Been, yeah, we're going to be uh, using it for the first time on Friday, uh, and then we will figure out who's going to manage it as a rental for us, and we'll be in and out of the resort lifestyle uh, for the foreseeable future. So I'm very excited about that. We are going to talk about five stock market mistakes that can leave you broke. That's where we're going off the top. Then we are going to talk for what we're watching about Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic went a little insane over the weekend. Uh, and we're going to talk about this a little bit and short-term news doesn't really matter. But if you hit a milestone, that kind of de-risks a company. It's something Max Chasco talks a lot about. So we're going to talk about Virgin Galactic. And then I'm going to have on David Van Omberg. He is the managing director of the American Customer Satisfaction Index. And we talked about how people feel about the travel industry. It was a very strange year for the travel industry and people responded accordingly. And of course, we will take your questions and comments. But Steve, five stock market mistakes that can leave you broke. We see these all the time. Uh, I'm gonna throw them out there. I'm gonna let you comment. Don't buy based on short-term news. We're seeing so much action in the market where some dumb thing happens and people are going crazy, up, down, sell. It's exhausting to me. Right. Your thoughts? Oh, trading, you know, trading around earnings is a big thing that people do. Uh, and a lot of people trading around, you know, we'll talk about this later, but the Virgin Galactic flight, uh, when you're, you know, people buying options that expire today or on Friday <laughs> or, oh, you know, there's, there's a lot of risk there. And, uh, and, and however people might try and say, you know, these are calculated risks, uh, it, it's very, very risky. And, and the big reason that we prefer to invest for the long term, because you trade around short term news. And, um, you know, sometimes that that plays out. Uh, sometimes it's massively disappointing, you know, especially around earnings. You have companies, especially this quarter, so many businesses released fantastic quarterly earnings reports and the stock sold off anyway. So there's no guarantees. It's it's sort of a, a lottery ticket, so to speak. And, and we prefer not to um, create binary outcomes for ourselves. It becomes much more predictable and predictable when you extend your time frame. Earnings reports and calls, uh, they tell a story. They're not end results. So yeah. a lot of people say, okay, this was up 7% and analysts thought it should go up 8%. Who right. are these analysts? Where, where are these opinions from? What you want to be watching in an earnings report is what did the company say it was going to do and did it get there? Now, that might be esoteric. That might not be specifically we said we're going to have 4% sales growth. It might be a, a retailer who says we're going to grow women's apparel sales. Well, if they mention that in Q1 and then in Q2 they don't mention it and someone asks a question and they don't answer it, that's a problem. If they say, yeah, we saw you know a slow start, but the, the second six weeks of the quarter we were up 9%. That's spin. That, that's obviously using numbers the way you want to use numbers. But that's what you watch. You start to watch how this story unfolds. You don't look at any sequential sales because you know, let's take Apple. 
Apple might have an incredibly good iPhone quarter because a new phone came out or a new color right. or something Th that might make sales like particularly lumpy or look strange. We've we've seen this with uh, with Netflix and, and with with uh, Disney Plus. Uh, these are both streaming services that pulled a lot of people in early and then maybe didn't have as good a follow up quarter. That doesn't matter. It is a long term Tail. We would love, Steve, I'll come back to you in a second. We would love your questions and comments. If, uh, if I'm coming off as a bat out of hell today, it's because I am very excited. This has been weeks, <laughs> months uh, of, of super stress. Uh, I'm going to actually record something about how you buy a home in a, in a seller's market uh, at some point this week because it was not an easy process. Steve, your, your thoughts on uh, item one here. So maybe one more thing before we move on to, to item two, uh, I will say that's not to say that, that you don't necessarily take advantage of short term, like negative catalysts or, or you know, things to, to add to your position. Like there are stocks that I've added to in recent weeks because they were pummeled, in my view, unnecessarily. And, uh, and, and it was sort of these unjustifiable declines. And sometimes we'll, we'll take advantage of those with the intention of buying and holding for the long term. That's the big thing is extend your time frames. I'm not taking advantage of short term news in order to, you know, turn around and sell it a week later. Uh, that's that's kind of a big thing. Um, you know, so sometimes I'll say, you know what, uh, this stock has been pounded and it shouldn't have been. And I'll take advantage of that just to add a little to my position or maybe open a starter position or something like that. Um, and, and yes, I take advantage of that stuff sometimes. I've done some of that in the past few weeks. I've also bought some shares in some companies I don't necessarily know or I personally would argue maybe I don't want to buy because you guys have been so compelling. And it's like, you know, yeah. maybe I should just own a share or two of this in case it's really as good as they say it is. So I could at least feel like I was a little bit of the party. I feel like five to 10% of my portfolio is just like a hedge against me not being always, you know, right. Uh, which sounds silly, <laughs> but when you're part of a team as strong as ours, uh, there are things that I previously maybe didn't believe in that maybe you guys haven't convinced me 100%, but you've convinced me enough that I want to own it. Uh, but stock market mistake number two, don't take market advice from sources you haven't vetted. And I'm going to specifically call out Twitter. We, we talk about some big name people. I'm not going to call any of them out uh, specifically by name, but some really big names with a lot of followers that are bouncing around. They're, they're, they're yeah. all over the place. Um, like I don't give specific stock market advice on Twitter. I might tell you that I don't like something, but I don't talk about what I've bought. I may occasionally talk about what I own if it's something really, really obvious. Uh, but Steve, your thoughts here. You know, I'll, I'll sometimes talk about, you know, I added to my May recommendation or something like that. And, and you'll get a little bit of that, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of followers, uh, sometimes on, on just social media in general, uh, who've made some decent calls, but it, it's you also dive in and you know sometimes you see the research is is subpar and you're like oh boy and and you know you kind of call into question uh, sort of the, uh, the the rest of the research and see whether everything's really filled and uh, but yeah I mean the, you want to stick with with vetted sources people with a long track record preferably uh, of beating the market and. Um, you know, that's not to say ours at Seven Investing is is particularly long, considering we just launched in March 2020. But each of us individually have our own long individual track records of outpacing the market and you know, picking market beating stocks for years and years and years. So, um, I mean, I hate to pat ourselves on the back too much, but just be careful uh, and, and don't blindly take advice without really digging in and doing your own due diligence.
Steve's arms are much longer than mine, so he's better at patting himself on the back, uh, Barry Horowitz style, than I am. That is an 80s wrestling reference uh, for any, anyone watching. I, I look at it this way. We're very transparent about who we are. If you go to our website, if you go to seveninvesting.com, you see our bios, you see where we used to work, and and you get a sense of who trained us. I mean, little look, I, I we all worked at the Motley Fool. I worked at the Boston Globe. I worked in my, at Microsoft under some some very very financially savvy people and got really really good training. And I, I think we're very very clear about that. Uh, we have two PhDs on our team. Uh, Simon has an MBA. I have none of those things. Um, you know, but that said, I have a journalist background, which isn't typical of people who are picking stocks. So my research ability is probably stronger. There are some great follows out there uh, on Twitter. Our, our friends Brian Feroldi and Brian Stoffel uh, are both incredibly transparent about how they pick stocks. So if you watch them walk through their process and you agree with their process, well, that might be a viable reason to buy into one of their stocks. That is very different than you know stock guru seventy five going on and being like, "I love this to the moon." You know that, that that's and, and even when it sounds like analysis you don't necessarily know what their goal is. Maybe they're trying to push it in a different direction than, than you actually think they're going. Um, that's part of why we reserve our actual picks for our members, where they can get all the background, all the justification. Uh, number three here, this is one that drives me nuts, Steve. Uh, don't buy a SPAC or an IPO just because it's a shiny new thing. We get asked this all the time. Like, oh, I just heard that this SPAC is gonna be uh, you know, this company that I don't know anything about. Like, I wanna be in on day one. That to me is generally a terrible decision. Your yeah. thoughts, Steve? Uh, yeah, some things, you know, not all that glitters is is gold, right? And and there's a lot of very shiny glittery, glittery IPOs and SPACs out there that people wanna dive right into because they've seen stories where it's worked in previous cases. And, uh, you know, I prefer to generally give it at least a few months, uh, preferably a few quarters. I have recommended a couple companies on my own, you know, my own group of recommendations at seven investing, uh, that were recently, very recently IPO'd companies, but it was only because I had um, strong conviction in the business and I'd done my own due diligence. I've read the entire S1 a couple of times. And, uh, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's something that, um, that you need to do your research and you need to really understand things, you know, like lockup expirations, digging out uh, who owns the stock, the company's uh, plans for, you know, monetization, if they're, you know, kind of pre-revenue or pre-profits. Uh, you want to understand their long-term story and you want as much information as possible before you make that decision. Yeah. And look, we have had some recommendations that were new SPACs or IPOs, and those are generally companies with a somewhat public track record, even though yeah. they weren't public companies. The example I'll give, and it's a very concrete one. I know a lot of people get mad at me for not liking this company, but when DraftKings went public, they basically had like four pages of information. There, there, there wasn't real financials. There was a, they actually had a warning in there that they could run out of money, which they later were able to rescind. Uh, there was no reason to not wait a quarter or two. Daniel Kern 79 has a great comment if you want to share it, Sam Bailey. It took me too long to realize that money that many on Twitter use investing and trading interchangeably. Yeah, it's important to know what someone's mindset is. Um, you know, we're going to talk about Virgin Galactic later and some very big name traders uh, or investors or whatever you want to call them have been public about they're owning it, they're selling it, they're buying it. Nothing's yeah. changed. This is a company that if you believe in, 
it, now, if the rocket had blown up on Saturday, that would have been a negative, you know, milestone that would have set you back and maybe would be reason to leave. So right. far, this is a company that's meeting its goals. I'm not entirely sure why you would sell, uh, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to poke holes at Kathy Wood. She's obviously incredibly smarter than I am. Um, but it feels weird to me to be entering and exiting a position when really nothing different has happened. I am a big fan of just waiting a couple of quarters. Steve, this one is one I talk about all the time. Number four here, be skeptical of conventional wisdom. Uh, Conventional wisdom in investing is not always right. Your your opinions here. Yeah. um, (laughs) I, I would also argue that, you know, conventional wisdom when it comes to old school valuation techniques is, is not necessarily correct anymore. Um, you know, a lot of people still want to to rely, you know, they they find P.E. ratios and they're like, that is the be all end all of, you know, and, uh, you know, price to sales and, and uh, you know, enterprise value to trailing 12 month revenue and forward revenue. There's all these different ways you can value stocks. And it's sort of it, it's it, it really depends on the business. You need to do a lot of analysis on a case by case basis and determine what valuation metrics are appropriate when a business is, you know, expensive but not expensive and um you know but you also see industries uh you know you mentioned uh cannabis stocks you know for example right when they came out and a lot of people lost a lot of money and uh 3d printing back and you know was was kind of one of those things where a lot of people lost a lot of money but still holds long-term promise and um trends and and people saying this is the next big thing uh isn't always necessarily true and conventional wisdom in a lot of senses uh in investing can can get you in trouble so you bring up cannabis and the conventional wisdom was cannabis is the next big thing throw money at anything in cannabis Mm -hmm. well that shows not really understanding how easy it is to grow cannabis and that the reality is to make money in this space you're going to need branding you're going to need to be differentiated There, there has to be something more there and very few companies have succeeded in doing that. You're going to see that in sports betting. Again, I don't want to bring up DraftKings again, but at least DraftKings has some differentiators. They have some big deals. They have the daily sports uh, that at least make it something different than just right. another betting platform. That being said, nothing they're doing is proprietary. So I'm not so sure that there's going to be big winners in this space when you're going to be able to gamble on ESPN or, or on any of the casino apps or probably at your 7-Eleven and, and, and all sorts of other places, depending upon where you live. And I'll throw one more out. Conventional wisdom says that brick and mortar retail is dead. Well, tell that to Walmart, tell that to Target, tell that to Costco, Dick's Sporting Goods, Dollar General, Five Below. I could go on for quite a while. Just because Sears and JCPenney are really bad at running their businesses does not mean that the the sector is dead. Is there a big change? Absolutely. We're moving towards an omni-channel model. But it's really, really lazy to follow these conventional wisdom thoughts. Uh, Rahul Gotti, we're going to take your question at the end of this segment. Steve, anything else you want to say on conventional wisdom here? No, I was going to say I can address uh, Rahul's question as well, but let's do that once we're done. Yeah, let's, let's take that at the end. Number five. Uh, this is one of my favorites because I suffer from this. I, I, I am a, as I said, a journalist by trade. So I'm taught to see both sides of things. Uh, and it's don't let understanding the bear cause you to not act. Uh, my, my script says not act, but it's not act. Uh, and it's one of those things where I could take the best company in the world and find a scenario. I'm like, well, what if zombies invade? Like that, that could be a thing, right? And you end up not buying it. And I think that's a mistake. Any company has risk. Obviously, the higher upside means higher risk. Steve, have you fallen victim to this one? Uh, just 
I mean, <laughs> is it funny that when you say don't let understanding the bear cause you to not act? First thing I think is like black bears, get big, scare them away. Grizzly bears, <laughs> probably protect your vitals, you know, uh, <laughs> Montana thing right there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've fallen uh, into that as well, where, where you don't, uh, you don't understand that case and, and uh, you're, you're sort of um, stunned into inaction or, or sort of indecision causes inaction. And uh don't be afraid to to really dive in and, and fully understand a business and, um, you know, or, or find people that that do, you know, like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, not taking market advice sources you haven't vetted. Uh, find people that you trust uh, who understand these stocks. Ask us questions uh, about certain things and uh, and we'll we'll be happy to to give you. Uh, our thoughts on social media sometimes tag us, you know, you can email us info at seveninvesting.com. Uh, if you have questions about investing processes or our service. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's just something that a lot of people fall victim to. And of course, we're happy to take your questions live on this show. And uh, that mm. is what we're going to do with uh, Rahul Gadi right now. Really good question. Uh, getting lots of great right. questions. We don't take all of them, of course, but I really appreciate this one. Sam, if you want to throw it up, that would be great. I'm always unsure what to make of the price targets set by analysts, how to view them. Uh, throw them uh, away. Don't care. <laughs> Absolutely meaningless. People creating noise. Um, that's not how you invest in a company if you're in it for the long term. Now, what you want to do, and, and we do this in our investing theses, is we sit down and we look, we, okay, where is this company now? All right, it's doing a billion a year. Can it get to two billion? Yep. Can it get to a hundred billion? And we figure that out and really, you know, have our reason why it's going to get there. Price targets are this artificial tool that's you know, a way to, to generate churn when you're a brokerage or an analyst. And right. I, I place zero value in it. Steve, your thoughts. So um, actually, if you go to seveninvesting.com and you find our frequently asked questions, um, this is one of them. And uh, a, people say, why doesn't Seven Investing assign price targets? And uh, we actually have uh, a frequently asked question article uh, that I wrote uh, a few, well, last year says, why doesn't Seven Investing assign price targets? Because price targets depend heavily on valuation models and valuation models vary widely based on the inputs. You can change a couple things and come to a drastically different price target, which is why you find uh, 12-month price targets, which is kind of what we've become accustomed to seeing, that you know for any given company can be like this analyst thinks it's worth $20 a share and this one thinks it's worth $71 a share. That, you know, or Tesla, zero to 4,000, right? A couple <laughs> of years ago. Uh, people, th these these price models are, are they, they vary widely, but we focus at 7investing on issuing evergreen recommendations, uh, businesses that are strong and continuing to work toward a bigger picture view of the markets that they're trying to tackle. So we don't assign price targets. We buy, we hold from the long term. And that's how you realize the massive gains. And, uh, you know, we're looking for 10 beggars, 100 beggars over the course of, of years, right? And, um, we want businesses that will generate life-changing wealth. And that's what we look for over periods of years, not days, not weeks, not quarters. Uh, we look for, for years. So uh, we mostly ignore price targets and, uh, and we just look at the progress of the underlying business because over time, their share price and the changes in it uh, tend to reflect progress in the business. Stock investor asks us a question here, uh, which is actually something we've been talking about internally. When we start mm -hmm. to see seven investing investing Twitter spaces uh, hosted by Dan Klein. So 
we might do some Twitter spaces. I can't say I love the format. I, I've participated in, in some, um, happy to do them, but I, they tend to be good for monologues and we tend to be a company more about conversation. Um, that being said, we're talking about a lot of things. Do we want to do more calls just for our members? Do we want to participate in more in more spaces? So I think you'll see more of us in different formats. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to record a video later about uh, how you buy a house in this really difficult market because I think there's a lot of terrible information out there. Uh, here, here's one to throw out. Writing the nice letter to the seller. They're not going to get super excited uh, about your letter if somebody else offered 20 grand more. Like, so we will talk about stuff like that. We're going to try all sorts of different things. Uh, we're going to take one more comment here. Uh, Steve, I'll let you read this one because I can't yeah. quite see the name in front of me. Uh, Bono JZK says, for high-risk growth stocks, what is your strategy to build up a position? Um, I tend to like to buy high risk growth stocks. You know, I, I find a valuation that I deem acceptable relative to its long term potential. And uh, I'll, I'll usually buy it in chunks over the course of, of several months. And, uh, you know, sometimes several quarters, I'll, I'll add to positions that I've owned for years, you know, years later. Uh, but I, I usually try and start uh, by investing in thirds or quarters. So if, you know, say I've got, you know, a thousand bucks or something, for example, uh, I might just open a very small position to start and just add to that over time. And, and you know, generally what tends to happen is uh, is if the stock climbs, at least you're partially participating in those early gains. And if it uh, pulls back pretty hard, at least you, know, you can also add to them at lower prices. Dollar cost average in, because again, we're buying for years and uh, very rarely does waiting a month or two um, you know, make a huge difference relative to your long-term returns. Uh, a lot of times what you see in the first uh, several quarters or even uh, first couple of years of owning an investment is uh, these look like blips in the long-term radar because you have charts that do this eventually with the, the best investments. So uh, I buy in, in chunks. Dan, what do you think about that? Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a concrete example about what we're going to talk about next. Uh, so Great. we're going to talk about Virgin Galactic. I bought a little Virgin Galactic today. Why did I do that? Well, it's not actually a stock I believe in in the short term. I think their, their space tourism model, they can gussy it up as adult space camp. It's a limited model. That said, I think the travel model is ultimately a really strong one. The ability to get from like New York to Sydney in, I don't know, like an hour or whatever it is. And, you know, we could go have lunch with Otterbahn and be home by the end of the day. Like, like yeah, it would cost like $30,000, but that, that still <laughs> sounds like a viable business to me. And having a successful test flight, to me, de-risked the company to the point that I felt okay throwing a couple hundred bucks at it. It's not a big position, uh, but it's one that, that people on our team, that, that my, uh, my good friend and former colleague Emily Flippin and I have done so many shows on where she was an advocate for it, and, and I was sort of pushing against it, that I'm not sure I see them getting there, but I think where they could get to if they do get there, it's going to make what they're worth now look ridiculous. So owning a little bit of it is going to be very, very valuable. I feel the same way about very, you know, about the Max Chasco stocks, uh, the Manisha Sammy stocks, the Dana Abramovich stocks that are in my portfolio. Hey, these are not businesses that I understand anything but the end goal. But if they get to that end goal, like, wow, like this company cured lung cancer, like that's probably really, really valuable. We would like more of your questions and comments. We will get to them later in the show if they come in. But Steve, we had a milestone from Virgin Galactic. Uh, right. What happened this weekend? 
Finally, uh, you know, and I, uh, for in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I, I'm bullish on Virgin Galactic. I have a pretty substantial position, but uh, Virgin Galactic finally took flight for the first time in two years from, uh, and also for the first time from Spaceport America, New Mexico. Uh, another first, this was the first of four planned test flights uh, for this summer. So, um, that's a series that will include, I think the third of the four test flights will include flying Sir Richard Branson, the company's founder to space or the edge of space really, uh, in order to demonstrate the in-flight experience for both its existing reservation holders that 600 future astronauts who paid an average of $250,000 for these flights. And they've got a thousand people signed up and another 7,000 have expressed interest already. Uh, so pretty decent demand for these people, but they want to demonstrate the in-flight experience using Richard Branson later this summer. Um, before they can begin commercial operations, hopefully in 2022. So uh, this was actually a revenue generating flight, a uh, very small amount of revenue from a NASA payload for some uh, scientific experiments they had on board. Um, and it actually accomplished several kind of crucial things for Virgin Galactic. Uh, first, we have to keep in mind, this was a redo of a flight they first attempted in December of last year, which they aborted because of electromagnetic interference issues, EMI issues, from some recently upgraded computers on board uh, that actually caused a computer uh, to reset and prevented the ignition of the rocket, and they basically just glided back down to the spaceport then. Uh, this flight first demonstrated the successful mitigation of those EMI issues. It also tested upgraded horizontal stabilizers and flight controls. Now, if you compare to the old or some previous flights they did a couple of years ago from a different port, uh, it was a much more stable uh, flight. So that was really encouraging that all that played played out well. Uh, I mentioned the, the uh, revenue generating payload that they had on board. And uh, they also collected data. This is maybe the most crucial thing from this flight. Uh, some data for the final two of 29 total FAA verification reports that are required to receive a commercial reusable spacecraft operator's license. Uh, that is required for them to you know, assume commercial operations in 2022. So uh, given their big drop on the heels of prior delays, you know, the shares were down pretty big, I think from their February highs down like 70%. So pretty wild. Uh, shares were understandably rallying today. I think last I looked, they're up about 20% and they were up more than 20% in the two days leading up to the flight because they only just confirmed this on Thursday. Uh, but it's been a pretty wild ride uh, for Virgin Galactic shareholders. And I think it's a uh, it's going to be really volatile uh, in the next several months as well, because they say they want to do all these flights by the end of the summer uh, before fall. So. so how far away are they from, are they going to fly every week? Are they going to fly multiple times a week? Like how, how right. far to getting through that backlog of, of customers generating some real revenue and moving into the next phases of their business? Yeah. So uh Coglazer, Michael Coglazer, the CEO, who is a former Disney executive, right? They brought him on, uh, which says a lot about sort of their intentions for for um, the entertainment and experience aspect of things. He was on CNBC this morning, and uh, he said basically uh, it'll take maybe a, a few weeks, if that, to process all the data, make sure they're good for next flight, and uh, probably we're looking at uh, you know several weeks. Uh, at the latest between their next flight. And a lot of people are speculating that they're going to fly Branson on the third flight in July. His birthday is on July 18th, I think. So that would be kind of an, an ideal time to do it. Right. And uh, so we'll probably look at a couple more flights uh, by the end of July. And they said the, there's a, the fourth flight is, is, uh, 
is with the Italian Air Force, actually. So it's got some astronaut training. Apparently, each of these uh, these Italian Air Force members have paid six hundred thousand a piece uh, for these flights to do astronaut training and some microgravity research. And they said that one will be late summer, early fall, and then uh, they will open reopen uh, ticket sales reservations. And it remains to be seen what the price will be for those, whether it'll be higher, probably higher, or at least the same as uh, the, the first people. But my guess is higher at first. And then bring the cost of that down over time so that they can um, you know, disrupt long haul flights and such. That's kind of the big thing after they, they get through this sort of backlog of people who want to become astronauts to actually exceed that and uh, experience weightlessness and see the Earth from space. And um, pretty slick business. And uh, and there there's a... a Pretty substantial bull case uh, for the markets that they, they could disrupt, in my opinion, over the long term. But they've got a lot of work to do. Well, hopefully that Italian Air Force news means that astronaut gelato is being developed. We've had the same <laughs> astronaut ice cream since the 70s. I would enjoy some delicious, smaller portion astronaut gelato. I am kidding a little bit. But Steve, this is still a very risky company, right? Because they could get six months in, everything going well you're always kind of one accident away from total disaster and maybe not, maybe not an end, but you know, we've certainly seen it with airlines, with cruise lines, where if there is a high profile failure, even if it's not resulting in, in deaths, that that shakes a lot of confidence. So this is yeah. not an easy road. No, it's, it's not. Um, but I, I would say, um, the results of the test flight, which basically went as perfectly as they could possibly have hoped. Uh, they've said that everything is absolutely amazing. Uh, they're going to have a, a couple month period at the end of this year, they said, just for kind of maintenance and prep before they can hopefully assume uh, commercial operations. And yes, you know, we have, I wouldn't say totally binary events, uh, but each of these test flights needs to go well. And, uh, and there's going to be some risk and a lot of volatility. I'd consider this a very high risk stock if I was rating it. Uh, and it, it's, it's one that I own and one that I'm hanging on to. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. But uh, really high risk, really high potential. Um, so there we have it. We're going to keep you up to date on Virgin Galactic as things go along. We're happy to take more of your questions and comments. Uh, if you'd like to become a member of 7investing, we're getting close to the first of the month. The first of the month is when our new picks come out. I'm actually pitching my stock today. We, uh, we, these take so long now. We produce such an elaborate video for our, mm -hmm. our members that we have to split it up over two sessions. Uh, so I'm pitching a company that I think you're all going to be excited about. And if you want to find out what it is, you, of course, have to be a member. That's $17 a month, $170 a year. That gives you two free months, access to our member calls, access to our new member calls. So you can learn everything there is to know about the service, access to an amazing array of content. You'd be shocked by how much content the seven of us produce. We even have some surprises of some people that aren't on the traditional seven investing team who are working on some content. Uh, we've brought in some guests before. We'll continue to do it. Seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. Uh, we're going to pivot here a little bit. I am very pleased to bring on David Van Omberg. He is the Managing Director of the American Customer Satisfaction Index. We talk uh, most quarters. I've done a lot of shows with David, but this one is really interesting. A lot of people are talking about investing in the travel industry, and I think this will give you some insight as to where you can go. Feel free, as this interview is happening, to throw your questions up, and I'm happy to grab them as we finish the show. Sam Bailey, if you want to hit that video, it would be very, very appreciated. Welcome back to 7investing now. Always weird to throw it to myself. I think I might be in a different location taping this than I am doing the show you're seeing this as part of. Uh, 
But I am joined today, uh, a regular guest on the program, David Van Omberg. He is the managing director. I get that title wrong all the time. He's the managing director of the American Customer Satisfaction Index. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, I didn't know you get it wrong. You can call me director, manager. What, I've I called know. you executive director more than once, which well, I know. I like that better. Can we just go with that? <laughs> is that better? Is that a problem? And, and I'll tell my ownership that Dan Klein is calling me executive director now. So I, that's my title. You well, need to just change it. It's funny. I come from the editorial world and like titles can be very vague. Like at one publication, a senior editor is very important. At the other, executive editor is a put out to pasture title. At some, it's an important title. So I always try to be really careful with titles. But we're going to talk about your recent study on travel, uh, specifically airlines and hotels. And let me ask you the question. Uh, most of the viewers know that I've traveled a bit. And I'll tell a little travel story in a second. But um, have you traveled since the pandemic? Gotten on a plane, stayed in a hotel? Um. That's a very good question. Got on a plane? No, absolutely not. I have not flown since like, I think a year ago, January or something like that. It was a couple months before the pandemic. Stayed in a hotel. I think that's no as well, but now I can't remember. Oh no, no, that is not true. Uh, we, we did drive, we drove our kids up to uh, Mackinac Island, which is a, a resort area in Northern Michigan uh, where the Mackinac Bridge is uh, at the Straits of, of Mackinac. Um, and uh, that was last August. We stayed at a very nice resort up there. You know, we drove up, did the whole masking and social distancing and all that good stuff while we were there. But um, yes, yeah, so we did take a nice vacation up there and stayed in the hotel. I've traveled a bit. Uh, and the only reason I'm sharing this is as I talk about it on the air, but I, I've been on a plane and the numbers for airlines were up. The numbers for hotels were down. And, and I'm going to just set this off by saying is, most airlines had to become more like Southwest during the pandemic. And Southwest is your perennial leader here. They're, they're the only airline I would ever choose to fly. But during the pandemic, all the airlines had to have liberal cancellation policies. And I think that made up for, it's not that much fun to wear a mask for five hours and to only have, you know, water. And I think there were four beverages on the flight I was on. And the person next to you maybe doesn't understand how it works and takes their mask off to order and you're not supposed to do that. Like, so there was a little more stress on airlines, but a lot, the rules were a lot better. Hotels, the situation wasn't necessarily great. Uh, you know, I stayed at places that had no room service. You'd have to go pick it up. I stayed at places where, you know, the, the pool was very limited or where the bar, you could only sit in like a plexiglass booth and you certainly didn't get that communal experience of just being with other travelers. So just wanted to give that context for these results, but with airlines, what did you see overall? Yeah, and that, and that context is exactly right on, Dan, in both, in both cases, and we'll talk about airlines being up a little and hotels actually tanking pretty, pretty badly, <laughs> uh, and all for the reasons that you described. Um, airlines, now to be fair to airlines, they have been uh, inching up a little bit over the past three or four years, you know, kind of a point every year, so um, we don't want to beat on them too much in the sense of, oh, they did better this year or just over this past year as a result of the pandemic. And it's just because of the pandemic. They have been going up a little bit uh, year on year. Uh, but this, this past year, even more so. And you're absolutely right. There's really two, there's two factors. One, uh, airlines had to be very accommodating. Uh, you know, if you needed to change, if you needed to cancel, bank those miles for later or bank the, 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 the money that you spent for a later flight, etc. Um, very accommodating and obviously passengers appreciate that. And then the only other metric out of all the things we measure, you know, how, 
how do you like the beverage service? How do you like the, how, how did you feel about how your baggage was handled or, you know, the onboarding process and the deep planning process? The only other metric in the entire study that actually improved was seat comfort. And that <laughs> makes sense, right? Because those of you who flew and I haven't had, you know, the experience yet, although now by the time I do, it won't be a thing anymore. Um, you didn't have anybody in the middle seat, right? That was, that was everyone's dream. I mean, everyone <laughs> wishes that could just always be that way when we fly. Nobody likes to be elbow to elbow with people. So the fact that we were able to kind of be at least one seat empty in between everyone while they're flying, um, it makes it a little better experience. And, and the airlines got that, that little boost. Now, is that going to hang on? I doubt it because we're going to go back to being packed into planes again as soon as it's, uh, you know, as soon as it's safe to do so, um, which means it's going to take a lot longer to get on the plane, a lot longer to get off the plane, a lot less comfortable and stuffier and all those things while we're, you know, sitting on them for, for hours. Um, but, you know, there was a little halo effect there. Yeah, my, my, my Southwest flights to Vegas, uh, three of the four legs, I, I had to stop each way were entirely full. I had one leg where there was one open seat on the plane and I must've looked intimidating or something because it was next to me. Uh, and I actually don't care that much because I'm just kind of eyes forward. If I'm on Southwest, I'm working or I'm watching television. It's generally, it doesn't really matter to me. I just don't want to talk to whoever's next to me. Like, it's fine if we have a conversation, but I'm not going to entertain you for five and a half hours. Like, like that's kind of what I do for a living. It's, it's a little much. So airlines, Southwest has been the perennial leader. Southwest treats its customers markedly better. Their basic policies allow you to change. Uh, bags fly free. Their, their flight attendants are nice. Like, did, did these results actually show that there's some benefit in, in putting customers first? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Southwest has been the model uh, forever. I mean, we've been doing this since 1994, so we're a little over a quarter of a century in now. And, and Southwest is perennially either all alone at the top or maybe tied with one other airline that, you know, has a, has a boost from one year to the next. Uh, but Southwest is getting it right year in, year out with a basic strategy that says, we know what people who have to fly, whether, the, whether it's for business or, you know, for pleasure, but you, you still have to fly to get there because nobody wants to drive 10 hours to go to Disneyland. Um, we know what they want most and we know what's most important to them, right? Which is, getting on the plane as quickly and efficiently as possible and getting off as quickly and as efficiently as possible and making changes when they need to. And, um, you know, not worrying so much about seating and, and just trying to keep the basic comforts uh, um, established and consistent. And they've done a really, really good job with that. They just don't mess around with a lot of other stuff, um, which is what uh, some of the legacy airlines have, you know, tried years and years and years. Uh, and, and they can keep their prices down, but they don't go overboard like your true budget airlines that really drop their prices, but also, um, well, you know, they say you get what you pay for and you get what you pay for. If you, if you get almost nothing, you can pay almost nothing for it. Let's talk about that. Cause we talked about it last year when this report came out, but I've flown Spirit and Frontier a couple of times, usually to trade shows when there was simply no affordable option. And they hate you. They make a point of hating you. But I actually think, are they using like a, a no frills Costco strategy where it's it, the more uncomfortable they can make it, the more value you think you're getting. So actually like treating people well would, would be like 
bad for their business? Are they using like a negative customer that's, service strategy? That's question. I'm not sure if they're actually using, I, I'm not sure if it's, <laughs> if it's inadvertent or by design. Um, it, it definitely, the outcome is there, right? I mean, you, you definitely feel like, um, you know, we got you there alive and that's what you paid for. And you literally paid for nothing else except you made it to your destination. Um, and, and that's about it for, especially for spirit and frontier. Um, to the extent that they're trying to engender that type of <laughs> negative feeling, I, I, that I couldn't say. I'll argue that Frontier is because they have a pamphlet where they're proud of they've taken padding out of the seat to lower their cost for gas. The plane is lighter and they brag that they don't have Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is a profit center. You should make money on Wi-Fi. So it's a very strange, like, look how cheap we are. And I get it to a point because when you're looking to fly on those airlines, I, I can see it, but I actually sort of factored those out from your results. If you do that, you get sort of like an average industry score of like somewhere in the, the 76s. Where does that fall uh, compared to other industries? Uh, it's actually on the higher end these days. The, the national ACSI has uh, been declining the last about three years and it's around uh, 73 to 74 now. So overall airlines are actually little better than average. I mean, they're not going to be at a, at a level of, say, automobiles or cell phones or some of these other, you know, cool manufactured gadgets and, and big ticket items that we buy. But as far as services go, um, actually not too bad. Not too bad these days. So I don't want to belabor hotels because the numbers were abysmal. But is there anything you see in trending from the hotels that wasn't necessarily related to the pandemic? No, I think everything, because the, the, the big drops we saw were all of the things that, um, you know, matter to people most when they're at a hotel, all of the amenities, things like um, uh, uh, pools and gyms, uh, many of which have just been shuttered. Even if you could stay at the hotel, you know, you weren't allowed to use a gym, you weren't allowed to use a pool, et cetera. Not so much now, but I'm talking about earlier days of the pandemic, last summer, for example, um, uh, restaurants, you know, many of them just shuttered or you could only have takeout. Uh, you mentioned the bar, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, go on trips. We love to just go meet people, just go hang out and have a couple drinks and just start talking and hearing and telling stories about what we're doing while we're here and what are you doing while you're here and so on. Um, and you just can't do that. Right. So, um, I, I, a lot of the drop in hotels was related to, um, and I think we talked about this uh, or, or another time, um, you, you know, you, nobody likes to fly. At least I don't know anybody. I've flown however many million miles and, and I don't personally know anybody who says, I'd love to get on a plane. It's just the best uh, there, thing there, the there's, one, there's one exception there. Anybody who has a newborn at home is thrilled to fly. The peace and quiet yes. of getting to be on an, on an airplane when my son was, you know, zero to six was absolutely sure. delightful. Sure. Um, but generally speaking, it's a thing we do because we need to get from A to B. It's not, it, there's not a pleasure in the flying itself, right? Um, but the hotel is the opposite experience. We're, you know, we've gotten from A to B and now we want to do the fun things while we're at B and we don't get to do them because of, you know, what's going on out there, which is, you know, awful and understandable. Um, but I think that's, that's why the hotels have taken a hit. Uh, you know, they've, they've, they've really tanked. 
but uh, by the same token, I think once we are really out of this and we return to whatever normal is, uh, we're just, we're, it's an aberration. We're going to see that rebound and, and it's, it's going to be as if it, it didn't happen. Final question here. Uh, do you think either hotels or airlines have learned something from this? Because I think maybe airlines, maybe a little have learned to treat customers a little bit better, but maybe I'm wrong there. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see coming out of this if, if airlines have, have uh, you know, picked up some things that could be beneficial in the long term. Uh, long term, you know, we've talked about uh, so many industries that have had to pivot during the pandemic, various restaurants that will now be able to say to themselves, hey, there's no reason why we can't continue to do some business this way, because this is really cool. And a lot of folks that, you know, couldn't get a reservation to dine in, they're, they're still happy to get delivery now through DoorDash, and we're selling more food that way and so on. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of industries that will learn a lot from this uh, in terms of um, just how they can do things more efficiently, do things more satisfying, more, uh, you know, more beneficial. Airlines maybe will learn some things from that. Um, hotels, I think, I think hotels are just desperate to get back to, <laughs> just get back to delivering exactly how they were delivering. And we're going to see people a lot more satisfied with them when they can do so. I actually think with hotels that you might see hotels that offer experiences have a bigger bump. Uh, you know, I, I'm in Orlando, Florida right now, and the resorts t that are that are operating at mostly normal, they're not fully normal, there's still some distancing, there's still maybe some capacity limits, they are selling out. Uh, you know, I talked to you off air that, that we, we bought, we're buying a property at a resort. And because it's kind of an isolated place with a, a lot of pools and ability to spread out, it's been very, very heavily booked, whereas maybe the less features hotels, uh, they might have to add pools and events and and, you know, and, and who knows what other thing. Complete aside there. I'm sorry to yeah. step on well, your no, but it's, it's valid, Dan, because the, the, the ACSI data showed that um, uh, your, your budget hotels didn't take the hit in the first place. That big drop wasn't really because of the budget hotels. The Motel 6s and all of those, you know, sort of lower end hotels that are all about, uh, well, your spirit and frontiers of hotels, right? Um, <laughs> because there wasn't that much to give up. I mean, when there is no bar, when there is no you know, uh, uh, breakfast other than maybe a buffet with some cold coffee and a, and a Danish, um, there wasn't as much to miss. The JW Marriott's of the world, right? That's where you go to really have a, a luxurious time and you couldn't really do much there except sleep in your bed. That's, that's where I think you're right. You're going to see that boost for them because people are excited to get back to those kinds of, uh, of, of hotels and, and enjoy the things that they were used to enjoying there. David Van Omberg, executive director. You are not the executive director. Oh, please, you, no, just you, keep using it. You are the managing director of the American <laughs> Customer Satisfaction Index. Thank you for doing this. Always a pleasure, Dan. Steve Simonson, we are back. Weirdly, when I taped that, I did not realize I would be back here in uh, Davenport, Florida. Uh, so <laughs> I'm in the same kind of white void with a, a small Joshua Tree picture above me. Um, but I won't be here that much longer because this is our current vacation home, not the new one I've referred to a few times throughout the show, which hopefully I'll be able to set up a more interesting background. Steve, you're going to travel a little bit this summer. Are you but, expecting things to be pretty much normal? Because they are here in Florida. Uh, maybe. I mean, it depends on where we go. I mean, uh, first trip, we're, we're heading down toward Arizona, you know, going to 
check out the Grand Canyon and and uh, hit Vegas a little bit on the way back. Um, that I expect to be mostly normal. Uh, we currently have planned a, a trip for you know to Mexico for later this summer, but that kind of remains to be seen because it's the Playa del Carmen area, Cancun, and uh, so they're 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 struggling a little bit with uh, with cases and and vaccine schedules and stuff. So that remains to be seen. Uh, but I think it really depends on where you where you end up going. So we're a little bit worried about that potential trip being put off, but uh, you know, it'd be nothing new uh, compared to what's happened over the last year anyway. So I'll be sending Steve some of those brochures they have at every Vegas casino about not abandoning your kids. And <laughs> sadly, in almost every Vegas casino, you do see like kids just like sadly waiting on the periphery. Folks, don't do that. That is a terrible terrible look. That's our public service announcement for the day. Sam Bailey, we're up on the top rope. We are primed. Let's hit our finisher. Which retailer is the best chance at long-term success? Uh, Macy's at 16.9%. Kohl's at 21.3%. Dick's Sporting Goods at 55.8%. Overwhelming winner. Dillard's at 6%. People, I think you got this one right. Dick's Sporting Goods. The reason I asked this question is this is a surprising winner. This is a company whose results have been pretty good every quarter that's yeah. also innovating. Uh, I'm going to use the term relentless innovation a lot because it's really where you need to be in, in retail. Uh, and Dix has multiple formats that are really interesting. Uh, one that has like, you know, practice fields and other things. And I actually think experiential is going to be really, really big for Dix. I know this isn't your space, Steve. Any comments you'd like to make on this one? Uh, no, I think they got it right too. And that's what I voted for. Uh, I, I will say I was, I'm kind of like pleasantly surprised in the meantime with the Kohl's Amazon returns partnership, actually successfully driving some traffic to their stores and I actually did a, a return at Amazon, uh, an Amazon return yesterday at Kohl's and they threw me a 15% coupon and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll use this to come back. But again, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I think Dick Sporting Goods, the nature of their products uh, is, is really just prime for success. And they've been doing some really interesting things to draw people to their locations. So yeah, I think Dick's Sporting Goods is the correct answer if there is one uh, here. I like Kohl's, but I question everything they've done. If they were going to partner with Amazon, they should partner with Amazon and having Amazon owned and operated brands. Uh, there's right. all sorts of interesting Amazon merchandise that nobody has ever seen that nobody buys. Uh, so I think that would be a mutually beneficial partnership. I do love what they're doing uh, you know, with, with Sephora. I think that has some, some real potential. Yeah. Um, so there are some good moves, but none of these are clear cut except for Dick's. All the, the three others could really all you know go under. I know Dillard's balance sheet is, is, is really, really strong and they had a very good quarter. I would argue to anybody, kind of throw out this quarter. Like, like this was kind of a rebound of, oh my God, I need pants where a lot of people were buying things and there was, there was stimulus money. There, I don't think this is a typical retail quarter. With that being said, we've reached the end of the program. If you'd like to get in touch with us, that is info at seveninvesting.com. That's questions about the site questions about the service. It's usually Steve answering the questions. Um, you know, sometimes we get some really interesting questions that get thrown out to the team. They might even become content on this show. If you'd like to interact with us on social media, we are at seven. That is the number seven investing. Uh, and we are very active on Twitter. We, we love to hear from you. I'll be back Wednesday with Simon Erickson, maybe Max Chatsko as well. Uh, and then a special show Friday with Anurban Mahante. It's going to be a weird mix of taped and live, and you won't know where anything is. I might be in like six different places while we do it. Thank you, Sam Bailey. For Steve Symington, I am Dan Klein. We will see you on Wednesday. 
A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.